Two scripture passages this morning, Genesis chapter 4, verse 17 through 26. We found in your pew Bible on page 7. And also, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,900 or 1,900. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning. Lord, may the meditation bring praise to you. May it glorify Christ. And may it, Lord, conform us to his image. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17 through 26. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mahujal, and Mahujal was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zilhah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all the kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wise of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, the Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ. Oops, wrong. That's chapter 3. I was like, this is not what I remember. (laughs) Try that again. 1 John 2, verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. That's better. I want to say something shocking that maybe you haven't thought of, but by the end of this sermon, hopefully will make more sense to you. And that is, Christ came for Cain. Christ came for Cain. And what I mean by that is not Cain in specifically... For we don't really know one way or another, 
but we have some pretty good ideas based on what the scriptures say about Cain, that uh, he was not a believer. What I'm talking about is the line of Cain. Our sermon this morning is called The Lines Divide. And what we have here in Genesis chapter 4 is a description of the lineage of Cain and the direction that they took and the line of Seth. And we keep in mind that promise given in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, right? That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so what we have in that promise, that first preaching of the gospel, that proto-evangelium, is a description of two lines. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And what we have here in Genesis chapter 4 are those lines dividing, splitting apart. You're seeing the antithesis. You're seeing the godly line and the worldly line. You're seeing those who are from the world and those who are from the Father. A reason for reading 1 John chapter 2. And so we'll get back to that statement. Christ came for Cain. Our theme this morning goes in line with what was said in our assurance of pardon and what I will later be pointing out about that statement, Christ came for Cain. And it's Romans chapter 5, verse 7. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have two points this morning. The first is from the world, and the second is from the Father. From the world covers verses 17 through 24, and we're going to talk about the line of Cain. And from the Father, we're going to talk about the line of Seth. So let's start there in verse 17 through 18. We read, Cain lay with his wife. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was in building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad. Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael the father of Methushael. And Methuselah was the father of Lamech. So uh, before we continue on, we need to make one thing clear because this is a statement that's brought, often, uh, brought up a lot, a question that's brought up a lot in terms of the validity of the scriptures and apologetics and whether we can trust that the Bible is telling the truth. And that is this. Um, who is Cain's wife? Who's Cain's wife? If what we have in Genesis is Adam and Eve are the first man and woman of creation, and then later we're told that um, Adam and Eve had a son, Cain, and Adam and Eve had another son, Abel, and then later we're told that another son they had was Seth. Who is Cain's wife? Well, we're told later on that Adam and Eve had other children. They lived for many, many years, hundreds and hundreds of years. And so... um, Not to shock you, but it's a pretty simple answer. Cain's wife was his sister, a daughter of Adam. And the reality is that what has come to have a negative connotation later on in history where we are now and even later on in the history of Israel when intermarriage between brother and sister, people who are closely related, was um, condemned did not have that reality back then, did not have that connotation, nor the consequences. Um, 
The consequences for marrying somebody who is closely related to you has to do with carrying on, carrying on genetic defects, sicknesses, and things like that. But here, early on in human history, there were none of those, or very little of those, and the fact that they lived for hundreds and hundreds of years shows that they had a vitality of life that doesn't exist in our day and age. In fact, many of us probably don't think about this, but even in the time of Abraham and Isaac, they married their half-sisters, people who were related to them. So, with that question out of the way, with that resolve, that mystery, which so often is pointed to, to condemn the validity of the scripture and to undermine its truthfulness, we move on. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. His son Enoch, in Hebrew it means dedication. And so it's interesting to find out that when Cain began to build a city, he dedicated it after his son Enoch. One thing we need to know here is that when Cain begins to build a city, it's in direct rebellion against his curse to be a vagabond, to be a wanderer on the land. Not only that, but expresses his lack of faith in God's promise that he would protect Cain and nobody would be able to murder Cain. The con- kind of uh, a thing that you do when you build a city is you build fortifications, you build walls that protect you. It is a protective measure. Instead of being a wanderer, a vagabond that gathered, that wandered all over the world, Cain has decided he will make his mark. He will build a city, a permanent residence. Not only that, but he's saying, God, I don't trust you to protect me. I must protect myself. But his pride and his arrogance goes further than that. And what we read here, we read here that he names the city after his son, Enoch. This is important because it expresses what's significant to Cain, what's important to him. We're going to continue to read in Genesis of places that are named. Areas and spots and altars where sacrifices are given. We'll continue to read about cities that are named in the history of Israel. And often their names express their dependency upon God. They give honor to God and glory to God. But what's important to Cain? What does he think is significant? His own name. His progeny. His descendants. This is self-glorification. This is what 1 John chapter 2 says in the NIV. The lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, or what other translations have called the pride of life. And so, we see the direction that Cain's line is heading in. It's from the world. It's about the world. It's of the world. 
We continue to read more about Cain's line and the line of Lamech. Verse 19 through 22, we read about Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zilhah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Namah. Well, the first thing that we should note is that even though many of us are probably familiar with the scriptures, and we know about the bigamy and polygamy that happens in the Old Testament on into history of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob would all have multiple wives, we should, not, we should not glance over the shock of this statement in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 4. So closely to what we read about marriage and God's intention for it in Genesis chapter 2, what we read about marriage there is that God has always intended monogamy. God has always intended one man, one woman, forever, for life. And what we read following into the future, when we look at what marriage was meant to point to, the union between us and Christ, between us, the bride, and him, the bridegroom, is that the gospel is at display. In marriage. And so when marriage does not look like what God intended it to look like, the gospel is distorted. And so Lamech married two women. It's not just a simple statement of reality. It's not an insignificant historical detail. It's not a, we just need to mention this here for you, because these are details that are important that you need to know. It screams about the direction that this degenerate line is taking. It's a degenerate line of the world that first transgresses God's command, establishing what marriage is meant to look like. And in fact, their names, Adah and Zilhah, might reflect their fleshly attractions. Adah probably stems from a root meaning ornament or adornment. Zilhah may mean tinkling. So what is being talked about here is the lust of the eyes. And the lust of the flesh to practice Polygamy is to live for the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. It's living by sight, not by faith. It's living for the world and what you can get out of it. The enjoyment that you can grasp for it. One of the statements that could be said about polygamy is that if this world is all you've got, then why don't you have as many wives as you can get? As much enjoyment as you can possibly grasp for. Because if you don't think there's something better to come in the future, if you don't think that your marriage now is simply pointing to a more blissful, glorious union with your Savior, 
Then be gone with it. But we read of the children of Lamech. Jabal was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Jubal, father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son named Tubal-Cain who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. This is what is shocking about what is being described for us here. We're told that of the line of Cain is the ancestor who began all pastoral nomads. This advancement in living in tents and wandering with the sheep. We're told that the line of Cain produced the ancestor of all musicians. Jubal, the father of all who play the harp and flute. And we're also told that of the line of Cain was Tubal-Cain. And he was the ancestor of all types of workers in metal. The advancement in creating tools and weapons. And so some would come to Genesis chapter 4 and make a broad statement about this, right? If the line of Cain is the line of the world, then living in tents and raising livestock is an evil job. If the line of Cain is where music came from, music is of the devil. If the line of Cain is where all kinds of tools of bronze and iron were created, then we should get rid of metal in our house. We should only use plasticware. We shouldn't have silverware. But what you don't understand about what is being said here is that these things are not being called evil in and of themselves because they originate from the line of Cain. In fact, that's called the genetic fallacy. But rather, this is an expression of the common grace of God. In fact, many of these things will be integrated into the worship of Israel. Think about it. Those who live in tents and raise livestock will be part of the living experience of the people of Israel as they wandered through the promised land. It will be part of the living experience of God who will dwell in a tent, a tabernacle. Jubal, who plays the harp and the flute, David will come to to give the job to a section of the Levitical priesthood to play instruments and music in the worship of the temple. And Tubal came, all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. All you have to do is read the descriptions about the tabernacle and the almond blossoms and the candelabras and all the beautiful things that will be created from metal to be used in the worship of God in the temple and in the tabernacle. And you say to yourself, these things aren't evil in and of themselves. And it teaches us two things. And the first is, by the common grace of God, that is a grace that's given 
indiscriminately to all people. Like Jesus said, God calls the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives food and provision for those who do not deserve it, who are uh, sure to be condemned. He gives grace to us all because he does not consume us in a moment as we should, as he should when we sin, right? By the common grace of God, human civilization and culture are developed, not only by the godly, but also by the ungodly. That's the first thing it teaches us. The second thing it teaches us is that progress in human civilization and culture does not preserve humanity from moral deterioration and final destruction. You know why? Because just as these things can be used for good, they can also be used for evil. And it's these very people, the line of Cain, who will take these wonderful advancements in civilization and society and plummet the world into the moment when God says the heart of every man is evil all the time and he wants to destroy all of mankind because they have become so corrupt and wicked that he floods the whole world only saving Noah and his family. So I want to make a note of this because I think this is an important message for us today in our particular time and history. It is God who in His grace restrains the hearts of evil men and allows there to be civilization in society. It is God who keeps civilization and society from plummeting into destruction. But it is also God who can lift His hand of restraint and in His wisdom and in His providence and in His judgment cause a civilization and society to plummet into chaos and destruction for His own purposes. You understand what I'm saying, don't you? That it has been the grace of God that has sustained America, the United States, as long as it has. And if God restrained, lifts his restraining hand, and we see our society and our culture go in a direction it has not gone, God is still in control. And he will use that to teach us something about him and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. And God has done that over and over again throughout the history of mankind. And none of those times has God's desire, God's will been thwarted. God will accomplish what he wants in this world. 
God will bring history to an end the exact way that he wants it brought to an end. And on that day, none of us will say, God, why did you let this happen? Or God, why did you let this happen? We will all declare that God in his wisdom has done everything right. So it's our responsibility, it's our duty, it's our calling as Christian people to pray that the Lord would give us mercy, but that if judgment comes on our society and our country and our culture, because we know that's what we deserve, that God would give us the strength to be his people. God would give us the strength and the boldness, and the humility to love, to strive for truth, and goodness, and beauty. I'm not talking about fatalism here. I'm not talking about just giving up and letting God do whatever it is that he's going to do. I'm saying us knowing that God is sovereign and and in control, that Christ is king, means that we continue to live as he's called us to live. We learn what we must learn from what we go through, and we strive forward. Human civilization and cultures are developed, not only by the godly, but also by the ungodly. But progress in human civilization and culture does not preserve humanity from moral deterioration and final destruction. There's a lot of people in this country right now who think that somebody in government is going to bring our salvation in, that somebody in control of power is somehow going to fix all the problems with this world, and I've got something that they need to know and you need to know. Nobody in government can save your soul. Nobody in power can take away what God desires to accomplish in this world. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We belong to a kingdom that will not be moved. We have a king who is king of kings and lord of lords. And my prayer is that in the days to come, people would see that and would know that. However, the emphasis given to these things in comparison to that of the godly line and context does point to something Matthew Henry takes note of in his commentary. The idea of these advancements in civilization. Matthew Henry says, Worldly things are the only things that carnal wicked people set their hearts upon and are most ingenious and industrious about. So it was with the impious race of cursed Cain Here was a father of shepherds and a father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. Here was one to teach in brass and iron, but none to teach the good knowledge of the Lord. Here were devices, how to be rich and how to be mighty and how to be merry, but nothing of God. May that not be true of us. The mention of Tubal Cain's sister may continue to point to the worldly mindedness of Cain's descendants. Her name, Namah, means lovely one. 
And here we read the second poem ever read, ever spoken, ever said in human history. And I like to call it the poem of pride. He said to his wives, Lamech, Adah and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. The first poem we read in human history is Adam saying to his wife how lovely and beautiful she is, how perfect she is for him. Adam breaks forth in praise to God and in adoration of the woman. Lamech breaks forth in praise of great violence and arrogant boasts of the seed of the serpent. It's a poem of pride. And since the poem is introduced with a conjunction, there could be a connection between what Lamech says and the discovery of his son, Tubal Cain, on how to make tools out of metal. It's very likely he might have been holding a weapon as he spoke these words. And when it says conjunction, it's not... Uh, stated clearly here in the NIV, but uh, after uh, verse 22, it says, And Lamech said to his wives. Also, his statement is made in the perfect tense, which can either be understood as saying he's already murdered someone. As the NIV translates, I have killed a man. I have murdered a man from wounding me. Or something that will surely happen. A boast of something that will surely happen. And his use of both man and young man is a poetical way of saying anyone who crosses me. Man or young man. Man or child. Anyone who crosses me. Lamech's song of hate and revenge is pure atheistic humanism. He recalls the promise God made to Cain of protection and sevenfold vengeance on any who kill him. He's saying that he will even outdo the Lord in punishing offenders. The Lord said sevenfold on anyone who touches Cain, right? Well, Lamech says 77-fold. He declares himself more God than God himself. He takes the place of God. And the Lord, God, says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, right? That's what the Lord says. No, Lamech says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I don't need you, God. I am God. In Matthew 18, verse 21 through 22, you recall that Peter came to Jesus and he asked him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. Or 77 times. You see, the seed of the serpent professes unlimited revenge, retaliation, and selfishness. They are from the world and are overtaken by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this is our condition apart from God. But as I said before, Christ comes for Cain. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the coming of Christ is the reversal of this poem of pride. Christ bears the guilt of sinful humanity and calls us in our salvation new creatures, new humanity. Those who have been transported from the line of Cain the seed of the serpent, into the seed of the woman by faith to be the champions of unlimited forgiveness and mercy. 
to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now we've talked about those who are from the world, the line of Cain, but let's talk about those who are from the Father. The last part of our scripture passage tonight talks about Adam who lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and he named him Enosh. Seth means appointed. He is seen as the one who was given by God to replace Abel. The NIV translates this as, God has granted me another child in place of Abel. But the Hebrew is actually, God has appointed for me another seed in the place of Abel. And it's important that we, we, we maintain that word seed, even though we understand that it means child, because it points us to the word that was used in Genesis 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman. And so here we have Eve declaring that this is Seth of the seed of the woman. The birth of this child is a continuation of that promise, and the name his parents give him points to their faith in that promised deliverer. Also, Eve's declaration that this child is God-given strikes a contrast from the line of Cain. God has given her this child. What's Cain do with his children? Does not give glory to God. In fact, gives glory to himself by naming his city after his son. We are then told that Seth gave birth to a son he called Enosh. This name contrasts Cain's son, Enoch. Enoch was a dedication to the glory of Cain who even named the first city after him, Enoch, dedicating the city in his own glory and name. But Enosh literally means weak one, faint one. And this signifies Seth's understanding of the moral and physical frailty of mankind, the condition of being fallen in sin and declaring their weakness. Seth declares their dependency upon the grace of God. In his confession of weakness, he's asking for God's mercy. Mercy. Cain names his son Enoch. Dedication. Dedicated. He names the first city after his son Enoch, bringing all the glory to himself. And Seth names his son weak one. Faint one. Almost as if to endow him with his name. Trust in the Lord, not in yourself. Glory in the Lord, not in yourself. And then we read this final phrase, phase, phrase in Genesis chapter 4, which is uh, awfully hard to translate. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. That's what the NIV says. And it gives a note. It says, or to proclaim the name of the Lord. Is generally understood to refer to the commencement of public worship, whether it be in the beginning, uh, the beginning of prayer, calling on the name of the Lord, or in proclamation, proclaiming the name of the Lord. But one of the reasons this phrase is hard to translate is because there is an indefinite object. There is the word it. And where the word it is, the NIV and other translators have put at that time, men or people. But we don't know for sure if that's what the it is referring to or whom. 
It may, in fact, refer to the seed of the preceding verse. Also, the word began as a passive verb and therefore indicates being on the receiving end of action rather than the one doing the action. So what does all that mean? Well, if the it refers to God has granted me another seed in the place of Abel, if that is the subject of this indefinite object, it, and if the word began is a passive verb, which means that whatever is occurring to this it is happening to it, rather than they're the one doing it, it could mean that this is the time when the seed of the woman started being called by the name of the Lord. Or, another way to put it would be, this is when they began to be called the sons of God. At the murder of Abel and the banishment of Cain, it looks as if the line of the woman is over and has been ended. All hope could have been lost. Instead, God opens Eve's womb that she would produce another heir, one that would continue the line that leads to the promised deliverer. It appears that the serpent has won, but that is not the end of the story. God's promises will come to fruition. On the cross of Christ, it appeared as if the enemies of our Savior were, were, were victorious, that the serpent had won decisively. But the reality is that through the event of suffering and death of Christ on the cross, God brings about victory for Christ as he raises the Messiah from the dead. This is how God works in history. This is how he gets all the glory. At the point that it looks the worst, God is actually about to declare his victory. So I have a question for all you this morning. Do things look bad? Does it look like things are getting worse? Are you wondering how things could possibly get better? Does it look like our days in the future are getting darker and darker? This is what I want you to remember. Hold on. Here comes the victory. Hold on, here comes the victory. Here comes God to show you how the night is darkest just before the dawn. Here comes God to show you that just as it looked as if things were getting worse, he was working and working out his victory. Christ came for Cain. God had forbearance on the wickedness of mankind. God kept his promise to have a seed from the woman who would come to deliver. But the shock of the gospel and the grace of God is that Christ came not only for the line of Seth. He came for Cain. That the olive tree of Israel had branches grafted into it. That the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, those who were hopeless and without God in this world, those who are the enemies of God or of the line of Cain, the seed of the serpent. Christ died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead to rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of the Son. Christ came for Cain. And God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it to our hands, hearts, and minds. You would help us, Lord, to see that you, Lord, are working in our lives. You, Lord, are working in our history, in our future, to bring about your redemptive plan. That you, Lord, will be victorious. And that you, Lord, in Jesus Christ came and you saved us. You saved us when we did not deserve it. When we were enemies, while we were still sinners, you took us out of the world. And in Jesus Christ, we were brought to you. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our lives mightily so that we could be your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand